the future. New horizons. In a restless search for new opportunities and new ways of living. This was a promotional video for General Motors created in 1940, laying out their vision for the future cities of 1960. Throughout history, we've had visions of it. Some right and some, well, not so right. And some of us will remember tomorrow's world with flying aero cars and free energy. And the dream of being able to flick a switch on your car and fly off out of the chaos on the roads must have been around almost since traffic jams began. Well now, if you have around £15,000 to spare, it need no longer be a dream. This aero car we haven't always got our predictions right, but nearly every decision human beings have ever made has involved factoring in a sense of what the future is likely to hold. It's always been with us. It's always been part of planning. When you think from the first farmer wondering if the crops are going to come in, all of that is part of trying to create a better future for the people that we love. But I want to know if things are different now, at this point in human history. With access to such advanced science and technology, is it fair to say that we can say what's coming our way in numerous fields with an unprecedented degree of confidence? It has become possible to see what is happening in any spot of the world. And that has created hopes that we would be able to predict the future. And if we can, should we? People maybe don't think it through. What if you did know? Do you really want to know what the future is? Come, let's travel into the future. What will we see? Welcome to the Futureverse. I'm Kamal Ahmed. In this series, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we'll talk to some of our smartest thinkers about the future. Where are we heading? How could we individually and as a society shape our future for good? Will the world be a better place in five years, in 50 years, in 500 years? I'll be exploring this in the coming months and inviting you to join me. Look out for videos and podcast episodes and we will be hosting an exclusive event that you can attend. More details on that at the end of the episode. And you can find us on social media. Hashtag Futureverse. But first, I want to get to the bottom of the future as an idea. When I was a child, the future seemed exciting. Everything was going to be cleaner, faster and just a bit better. We would be able to buy anything we wanted as consumerism took hold and promised us more leisure time and less work. Is the future a modern idea? Or has it always preoccupied us? A new book by Oded Galore, The Journey of Humanity, argues that for most of human history, day-to-day -day life changed very little. Even while cities sprang up and we invented the wheel and mastered the seas, Life was hard and brutal, and life expectancy and living conditions remained stagnant. And then, 
in the 19th and 20th centuries, we hit a boom in human fortune. Life expectancy more than doubled, and per capita income soared 14-fold across planet Earth. All in a mere split second, if you consider the full expanse of human existence. What's more, Galore argues that the great cogs of history continue to turn, in ways that will inevitably improve human life on the planet. So, I wanted to know if the idea of the future as we understand it today really was a recent phenomenon, or if thinking about the future is actually something that is hardwired into us as human beings. I spoke to Dr. Alex Krotowski, a social psychologist, researcher and science communicator, to find out. Why is it, as humans, we are so concerned with our future as individuals and the future of the planet, of societies, of humanity itself? The most simple answer is simply survival, right? We as, as humans, as animals, are a social species. And so we need to know how to plan. We need to know how we are going to interact with one another and with our planet and with our, um, our resources as we propel ourselves forward. Ultimately, forward is the only direction that we can go. And I think that anybody who offers the view into the future, whether it's a, a justified or something that's, that's fantastical, really does settle us and reduces our anxiety uh, so that we can imagine where we're going to be. There was a, there was a research study that I, I, I have lent on in my life as a psychologist, as a social psychologist. It's a theory that, uh, that, that focuses on, on the description of the future self as the possible self. We are constantly inventing ourselves, constantly trying things on, taking them off, seeing if they fit, if they don't fit. And the reason that we do this is because we need to know how we fit in the world. And this idea that it is so fundamental to our psychologies that we imagine, that we play act, that we try on and take off these possible selves, I think is fundamental to how we operate and imagine what the future is going to be. When did we become more interested in more what might be described as social, political, societal, the future of those things beyond Will I get my crops in on time and will I be able to feed my family over the next season? Once we sort of settled, stopped being quite as nomadic um, and our crops became more frequent and we, we kind of knew or were able to predict that we would have enough to eat, that we would be able to take care of our families. You know, we already had a sense that, that there were those who um, could be better at planning certain things or or had a had some had some kind of imagining that they tapped into the physical and the social world um, and we treated them as priests or as as you know as 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 leaders within those communities and so we've always had these social structures so it's clear there is a human instinct to predict the future now i wanted to know how have people attempted to predict the future throughout history here's dr amanda reese a historian of science from the University of York. If you think about past visions of the future, then you can think about it in terms of prediction and you can think about it in terms of prophecy. So you have, for example, uh, the capacity of some individuals to prophesize what the future is going to be, either because they're God-touched, 
either because the divine has influenced them in some way or because they have some kind of capacity, some kind of characteristic that enables them to access what you might call a different plane of being. You've also got more private kinds of predictions. So basically going to an astrologer and asking um, for your horoscope, div- systems of divination, so on and so forth, which are a bit different. They're not, they're not dependent on the intrinsic capacity of an individual, but they're an application of a particular kind of system. Alexander Boxer is a data scientist and author of A Scheme of Heaven, Astrology and the Birth of Science. Astrology and astrologers were not a sideshow in the history of science. They were the, the main event. This idea that you could use mathematics and that you could use numbers to describe the world and ourselves is something that we ascribe to very much today. I myself am not an astrologer. I don't believe in astrology. I have a PhD in physics from MIT, and I work very much in the world of machine learning and and mathematical forecasts. But in the ancient world, the underlying view of astrology was that the world was entirely predictable, that it was controlled by fate, and that if you simply could read the signs of which the planets were one of many, then you could understand the future. But there there was no opportunity to make anything better or to change the future. At best, if you knew the future, you could stoically inure yourself against against it, but you couldn't change it. Uh, you know, at, at the time, there was no sense that you could use astrology to, let's say, make the world a better place. Governments were interested in astrology because they wanted to know how long the emperor was going to live or when there was going to be an uprising. It was very much a tool of power. From ancient Greek philosophers, you have this notion um, of kind of the world has fallen fallen from a golden age, so that rather than steadily progressing towards something, we are constantly falling away from what was once our perfection, what was once our closeness to the gods. From other cultures, you have a notion of the time as a cycle, you know, as this is, this is not time's, time's arrow, this is actually, we're all at different stages on the cycle of life, um, and what goes around comes around. What did change in the 20th century, late 19th, 20th century, I would want to suggest, is more of a sense of the future as planable. The future is something that you could plan, right? That you could take decisions in the present in order to shape the kind of future that you wanted to make. And this grows out partly out of the kind of the, the innovations in science and technology that are speeding up at this point in time. You've got characters like H.G. Wells, um, the famous science fiction writer, doing um, broadcasts on the BBC where he's essentially saying, look, why are we wasting all this money on writing and learning about history? And I'm saying this as a historian myself. Why are we wasting all this money on history when we need to be thinking about the future? We need professors of predestination. We need professors of foresight is what he was calling for. And it's quite easy to kind of sort of see who he thinks ought to be the first professor of foresight. It is dear old H.G. Wells, naturally. Man, you just unpack that a bit for me. I'm not a massive, I must admit, and I apologise for this. I'm not a huge science fiction reader, but just just talk me through a bit of that because I must admit, in my rather ignorant way, I think of science fiction as sort of mostly men of a certain type writing about a post-apocalyptic world in a dystopian manner, which makes me feel a little depressed. I think of science fiction as an experimental space for testing the future. It's not predicting the future in, in, that, in that sense, but it is testing out the likely social and economic consequences, particularly with reference to the fact that these consequences are differentially experienced by different groups. 
they're experienced differently by people of different genders, different sexualities, different ethnicities, different religious or different species, even if we want to talk science fiction. Yeah. Why, why do you think that so many narratives about the future are about are dystopian? apocalyptic, as you say, rather than optimistic. A key component of all kinds of future-oriented thinking is this dance, this dicky dance between utopia and dystopia. One person's utopia is going to be somebody else's dystopia. Perhaps we need to be careful to separate out the concepts of prediction and planning when it comes to the future. We've seen how role-playing can help us imagine the impact of possible futures on society. But does the lure of prediction still linger? And what happens when we don't like what we hear? What does climate change tell us about our two things, our ability to the future and second once we could can do that does it show that actually human beings are much more interested in their present wants and desires than they are in where the world might be in even 50 years in the first instance the first question how are we at predicting the future well we've got great models i think we've been we have predicting climate change for some time. Um, once we realized uh, what it was we were doing, and I'm a child of the 80s, I remember very explicitly the fear about the hole in the ozone layer. Um, we're pretty good at, at measuring and saying, hey, look, this is, this is coming. What we're not so good at is communicating that and, um, and influencing, shall we say, or persuading people that such an existential threat is uh, is imminent and and that we do need to do something about our our present in order to uh, in order to change what our future is going to look like. That's I mean, again, that's that's very psychological. You know, you look at other sort of existential constructs, the belief in a in a philosophy, a, a power that, that is greater than oneself is itself an existential idea. Surely we should be able to come to terms with this existential idea that, that what we are doing to the planet is something that is extraordinarily harmful. So rather than maybe explaining our lack of action on climate as 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 nation states, as governments, and as individuals, as businesses, etc. Rather than that being a function of selfishness, laziness, not realising where the future is going, are you saying that actually that's because we are only really motivated to act when we can see almost literally in front of our noses the effects of what the future is bringing? I would say yes, because because ultimately it does come back to that idea of of feeling like we can change, that we can predict, that we can strategize and do something. The accuracy of our data and models for predicting the future has increased greatly over recent years. But has this actually helped us make political or social or economic decisions that lead to better outcomes? How can experts and scientists persuade us to be more long-term in our thinking and our actions? A large component of data science is something I would call data rhetoric. You know, how do you actually use the data to persuade? 
And how you take this data and how you tell a persuasive story to get people to do A or to get people to do B is something that is of great interest today. I, I sense a degree of skepticism about from you about your notion of predicting the future. Should, should we just sort of give up and then just wake up every morning and if the sun's in the sky, then great, and I'll sort of go to work <laughs> and that'll do? Or, or how do we fulfill the human desire for predicting the future? Well, you know, I'm in, I'm in this game too. Uh, I'm, I'm so interested in what we can know. The best way to predict the future is to make it. So people out there in the laboratories, in the field, you know, making the new technologies, those are the people we should be asking what the future is going to be. With that in mind, I spoke to Dirk Helbing, Professor of Computational Social Science at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. In 2010, he was at the helm of a remarkable project that aimed to help us predict and scenario plan for the future with greater accuracy than ever before. It was called Future ICT and was as ambitious as the Large Hadron Collider. It was a way to take the masses of data we have available to us and in a decentralized and distributed way, use it to run simulations that could help us predict future events. It was made of three parts. The planetary nervous system would form a vast network of sensors monitoring socioeconomic, technological and environmental systems. Think everything from GPS data from your smartphone to the movements of the FTSE 100. This would stream torrents of data into the Living Earth Simulator, a model of human society that would give us the answers to specific questions about what might happen in the future. Not like an oracle, but a way to test the interconnectedness of human systems. If we do A, what will happen to X, Y and Z? The final part of the project was its open source aspect, a global participatory platform that would be an open framework for businesses, organizations and ordinary people to share and explore data and simulations. The idea wasn't to give us a glimpse of the far future or the minutiae of daily life, but a greater understanding of how the many systems that make up human society actually work. Dirk, we live in an era of data. We live in an era of mass computation, which is getting ever faster. Are we in a sweet spot of predicting the future? Actually, we've now got the best opportunity we've ever had to know what is going to happen. Uh, what we certainly can say is that we're living in times where it has become possible for some players to see basically what is happening on Earth in any spot of the world and at any time in very great detail. And that has created hopes that we would be able to predict the future and control it. That is, however, a lot more difficult as it turns out. So there are certainly attempts to build 
huge AI systems that do machine learning on all the data that's being created um, and a lot more data than you would ever imagine, you know, in a lot more detail than you know of. But there is randomness and there is something that people call freedom of will. And basically that messes uh, up basically with the predictions of the future. Right, so creativity, innovation, that is something that suddenly introduces novelty and uh, surprise and <laughs> that uh, basically makes uh, even the best forecasts sometimes useless. Do we know now with more certainty than we ever have before what the future maybe could hold or is likely to hold? Well, we knew... We know a few things for sure, and this is not always a positive knowledge. Part of that is, of course, about environmental destruction. It's about limitations of the Earth's resources, and that also implies there is a limited carrying capacity, and that's why people talk about overpopulation, and all of that has sometimes dramatic implications for the future. In a, in a sense, we'll see in much more detail the apocalypse. <laughs> and the question is, is that the tool that we do need? Or do we need a tool that would help us basically to overcome this trouble and to open up uh, a new chapter of history that would provide enough resources for everyone? Now, the question is, uh, would all the data of the world help us uh, to make a new start of a better world? Potentially so. But we need to be careful how to use that data. Because if we just feed it in the big computer, you know, perhaps a super intelligent computer, there is basically the danger of a lock-in effect. It would learn to continue in a similar way. Wasn't it, Dirk? the very reason for what was the Living Earth Simulator project to try and help us on that journey. Explain to, explain to us your role in that project and what that project was about. We were all interested in basically addressing the grand challenges of the future, the, the great um, problems that humanity has to solve, including environmental problems, um, a better financial system, and so on. This would basically empower everyone with data uh, to come up with better solutions for the future. That means very different from that kind of big machine that would control the entire world. We were aware that the world is a complex system. A complex system tends to self-organize, and come up with often surprising behaviors, uh, but in many cases it can be a positive thing, and we can use that self-organization actually for our purposes. If we understand those complex systems better, then we can just put the right kind of interactions in place to let the system evolve by itself into a favorable kind of state and behavior. Now that sounds like such a radical idea. What gave you any confidence it would work? Complexity science is really full of these examples. We've been working on that for quite some time. 
for example, we came up with um, a cruise control system for freeways that was able to dissolve traffic jams without a centralized traffic control center, just by changing the interactions between cars a little bit. That means the way cars would accelerate and decelerate in response to other cars. And we did a similar thing actually for traffic light control in cities when we let the cars, the traffic flows, control the traffic lights rather than the other way around. Traffic lights were less predictable, but trouble times were much shorter, actually. So now that was to the benefit of the drivers, but also to the benefit of nature. By changing the way we control the system, namely here, in a flexible and adaptive and distributed way, rather than a centralized control way. Using complexity as part of the solution, rather than as the enemy. And what happened to what sounds like such a remarkable project? Well, I think at that time the world was not ready for it yet. Um, big data was very much in the hands of very few players, there were some players, I think, who didn't want to share data and control with the citizens and with the rest of the world. And there was the idea that a centralized control and optimization approach would uh, probably work better for the world. And, you know, in the first moment, it sounds plausible. If you have all the data in the world in one place, well, what could be better than that? That's what most people would think. Do you think it's time to bring the simulator idea back, to refund it, to rediscover? Is it time now? I think so. I'm a child of the 80s. I was convinced that the bomb was going to drop. And it was just a question of what would I do with the three minutes between the sirens going off and my obliteration. But we are still here so many years later. And I suppose in my rather simplistic way, that does make me optimistic. I wonder, why do we tend to catastrophize our immediate future? Whereas the evidence suggests we do, in the end, progress. Is that Panglossian idiocy on my part? Or are there some grains of truth there? I think the nicest experiences we can make in our lives that if we're in trouble, somebody else is helping us. And I think people do have this um, desire to help other people and in particular in difficult situations. So, you know, I, I do believe in a positive future. Disasters may happen, crises will be around, but we will need to be able to respond to those crises flexibly I do believe, together, we'll be able to find ways and help each other uh, to get through those difficult times that may be ahead. I think we're very good at surviving. When I'm not doing the history of the future, I'm also studying human-animal relations. Um, my PhD was on the history of primatology. One of the things that makes us stand out, um, one of the things that makes us different as a species, as Charlotte Slay and I said in, in, in our most recent book, Human, is that we are really good at cooperation. 
right? Um, for all of the focus on competition, for all of the kind of discussions in kind of like popular um, evolutionary accounts of how everything is down to competition and the strongest, the fittest survive and all the rest of it, what we are really good, what humans are really good at doing is cooperating. We are good at get, we're good at working together in order to achieve things. And that more than anything does give me hope for the future as individuals we are naked apes we are toothless we are clawless we are feeble it's the capacity to cooperate and also the capacity to recognize the humanity in each other we have a theory of mind we have the capacity to to recognize that other people have a perception of the world that is different to your own but we can learn from that difference in perception and we do and we have and we will Coming up in the Futureverse. Join Ytree and Intelligence Squared to debate the motion. The world will be a better place in 5, 50 and 500 years. I'd like to invite you to join me in a very special exploration of the future. Put the date in your diary, 3rd of May, at an exclusive venue in London or available to live stream from wherever you are. I'll be joined on stage by the artist and sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley, moonshot technologist and happiness engineer Mo Gaudat, and climate activist Clover Hogan. We will explore the future of art and its role in the public space, how tech and artificial intelligence will evolve, and the intersection between these topics and happiness and creativity. Can we make the world a better place? How are we going to tackle the biggest issue of our time, climate change? To attend the event, go to y-tree.com forward slash futureverse and visit intelligencesquared.com forward slash futureverse for a wealth of information, including videos with some of our leading thinkers examining the future of their industries. Let us know what you think. Hashtag futureverse and see you in the futureverse. In the spirit of this wonderful podcast, give us your predictions. Five years, 50 years, 500 years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't know I'd be put on the spot. Uh, Hands down, it's climate change. I mean, that's, that is the number one thing that is going to dictate uh, how we operate in the future. I would say in five years' time, we'll have a different financial system. One element of the future that I believe will happen, that I think oftentimes is underappreciated, is that I think the population will peak. Oh, I really so much don't want to do this. Um... And 50 years' time will be humanity that travels space, will be connected with other planets. It'll be a fascinating transition. How do you direct our, our economies, which are designed to sell more and more goods to more and more people? in a world where uh, the people are older and there's fewer of them and there's just fewer people to sell to. We are potentially going to see perhaps a shift away from the notion that you're either well or you're ill. 
one or the other, and to see instead, to start seeing kind of medical situations in, in rather more shades of grey, if that makes sense. And in 500 years, we'll be still wondering about those strange times we've been in right now. <laughs> 500, 500 years still studying Donald Trump. <laughs> The Futureverse is powered by Ytree. In the future, wealth will be defined by how you live, not what you have. To truly understand and gain control of your complex financial life, you need transparency, efficiency, and understanding. Ytree is in the business of financial life intelligence. Combining data, experience, and technology, Ytree provides insight across all aspects of clients' financial profile.